This podcast episode is sponsored by Salesforce.org. Salesforce.org is the social impact centre of Salesforce, focused on partnering with a global community of changemakers. They provide access to powerful technology that empowers changemakers to build a better world. Salesforce.org's Education Cloud gives higher education institutions a single shared view of students, alumni and staff in an integrated CRM platform to create personalised experiences at scale, transforming learner engagements into lifelong relationships. Hello everyone and welcome to The Edge, Accelerating Higher Education, Season 2 of our podcast series with Salesforce.org, where we take a fresh look at higher education and digital transformation. What's happened since our last series? Well, first there was this. COVID-19 can be characterised as a pandemic. Then there was this. So all classes at Harvard University will be online next school year. And throw in a bit of this. This. We have been seeing activities that were putting students under real undue pressure, like 30,000 unconditional offers being made in one week alone. And this. Reprieve for international students who risked being deported. The Trump administration rescinded a policy that would have forced them to go home if their schools offered classes entirely online. Phew. Needless to say, it's been a bit busy and a lot different. And university teams globally have been flat out preparing the best experience possible for their students. So to all the higher ed professionals listening in, we salute you for all your hard work and adaptability. In this first episode of our new season, we are in conversation with four amazing guests about campus reopening to help share sector ideas around contact tracing, well-being, hybrid teaching and learning and innovative student experience. As well as this episode, I'd also recommend checking out the Guide for Universities on Reopening Your Campus Safely, which Salesforce.org have kindly designed to assess where you are in your own response to COVID-19, and which we will drop in the show notes. OK, here we go. Time to meet this week's guests to find out what's been keeping university presidents and pro-vice-chancellors awake at night. Well, uh, I'm delighted to have Dr. Gazwa, or Gaz Alwani Star, who's the Pro Vice Chancellor for Strategy, Planning and Partnerships and the Director of Property at the University of London on the podcast. So welcome, Gaz. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. And um, it's a real uh, personal pleasure as well as a professional one, as I know you're an excellent and supportive boss uh, to my husband, John, during a difficult time to us when we lived in London. Um, so I'm really pleased to also connect on that level and, and thank you in person. <laughs> Absolute pleasure. It's lovely to meet you personally as well. John is a, a valued friend and then was a really close colleague. So um, I'm, I'm delighted to get to know the family even more. Brilliant. I know, I know he, uh, you know, he misses you. He said hello as well. So um, oh, brilliant. Please say hello back. I shall do. Um, so yeah, to kick things off, let's keep things simple. Um, please, could you tell us who you are and what you do at the University of London? 
I, I do what it says on the tin. So I'm responsible for developing the university strategy. We have a new vice chancellor who started uh, about a year ago. And we have been putting our next um, strategy for the next five years. Uh, it's been quite an interesting period to be developing a five-year strategy. Uh, so we're in the midst really of finalizing our strategic objectives. What is the, the strategic leap that we're going to make? How are we going to look different in five years? Um, and then planning, uh, which is around uh, evidence-based decision-making and ensuring that our strategic decisions are backed up by data and by information around our students, particularly within our global markets, also in research and public engagement. Um, I'm also responsible for communication, strategic communications and marketing, uh, strategic asset management. The University of London is custodian of a great set of assets in central London property and other. Uh, so strategic asset management. Uh, and then I'm also responsible for governance and relationships with board of trustees, relationships with the 17 member institutions of the University of London. Um, the property portfolio is an absolute delight. They, they always, you know, I, I, I hung on to that because they always say what, what, no matter how far you, you advance your, in your career, you shouldn't leave behind your own core specialty and your technical qualification. So I'm a chartered civil and structural engineer and uh, I've brought property with me um, because it is uh, the original passion, I guess. And, and just as a sort of um, window for listeners into your sort of day to day at the moment, what could you share with us about some of the discussions you've had today as an example? Because I know that it must be sort of fast and furious at the moment. So I just wondered. Uh... Yeah, sure. Um, so the day started with uh, what we call a kit meeting, which is a keeping in touch meeting that brings all the directors and the senior leaders of the university together. Um, when we reflected on what the latest position means for the University of London. Uh, of course, we don't have, as a university, many UK uh, undergraduate students ourselves. Our, our student market is primarily global, 50,000 mm. students uh, across a um, 190 countries uh, but where we do feel um, the uh, impact is very much on the student accommodation um, so um, um, you know we were getting updates on what the student accommodation uptake is uh, is like with member institutions and um, and what students are telling us about what they want to do some want to defer uh, for January a lot are looking for rooms and wanting to come in and enjoy as much of the student experience uh, mm. university experience as they can uh, we then had a debate around opening our buildings in September and social distancing and what happens. We're, of course, in the midst of planning for local lockdown um, and also how we might um, consider a strategy either Bloomsbury-wide or with member institutions and how we can support each other. And then sort of flipped from that, that sort of the mental uh, gymnastics, I guess, to... Mm -hmm strategy, uh, our strategic objectives, how are we going to allocate investments, our financial sustainability uh, and the financial envelope that we might have to, uh, you know, to, to play with. So that's the kind of um, things that have been uh, the subject of discussion today. Yeah, just, just an easy day, just an average yeah. day. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks very much for the invitation to participate in your very prestigious uh, uh, series of podcasts. Uh, my name is Santiago Iniguez. I'm president of IE University in Madrid, which is uh, an international university, probably the most uh, diverse in terms of uh, number of nationalities and percentage of international participants across the different programs. 
with over 75% of international students across the different uh, degree programs uh, on campus. But uh, let me just uh, briefly uh, say something about myself. I've been, uh, before becoming president of IE University, I was uh, dean of uh, IE Business School mm -hmm. uh, for 17 years. And uh, I've been an academic since uh, my graduation at different uh, educational institutions. I also worked at uh, a different consultancy projects. And then I was involved uh, on different uh, endeavors and uh, uh, tasks related to quality in education in associations like EFMD, the European Foundation for Management Development, or AACSB, the American and Global Association of Business Schools, where I became the chair of the board. I serve on uh, the board of uh, different uh, universities and business schools uh, in different continents. And I'm also involved uh, in different associations and networks. I write uh, frequently uh, and publish on LinkedIn, where I'm an influencer. And uh, I also publish on academic publications. And I've been publishing different uh, books over the years. My latest one was actually uh, related to female philosophers and their contributions uh, to the world of ideas as applied to management and real-time business. Hmm. So it was a fascinating work. But let me just mention something about IE University because we are quite uh, young. I mean, in fact, very young. We were only created uh, 12 years ago by the business school. So we actually went uh, the reverse way to what happens at uh, other universities. They create business schools. We were a business school actually uh, creating a fully-fledged university, which now has five different schools uh, from architecture and design to law and global and public affairs, as well as human sciences and technology, and, uh, of course, including uh, business. Uh, the business school's uh, values uh, and the university's values mostly include the diversity and inclusion, international orientation, entrepreneurship, which is very much on our DNA, uh, innovation, and we have been experimenting uh, every year, uh, introducing new programs, launching new methodologies, and this is actually reflected in the way we deal with technologies, both in terms of contents as well as in, in terms of platforms and uh, educational methodologies. And finally, we aim at uh, developing uh, not just uh, the best possible professionals, but also uh, global citizens with a sense of uh, humanity and committed to a sustainable world. So I guess that uh, the sort of graduate that mm -hmm. we produce uh, is, is very distinctive, no? entrepreneurial, but at the same time committed uh, and uh, ambitious, but at the same time very much aware of their duties as uh, global citizens. With COVID-19 being determined as a pandemic in March 2020, the impact on student numbers for universities was still unknown. Whilst initial application data from organisations like UCAS suggested prospective students were hedging their bets, there was still a very real fear that students might defer. 
For example, the McKinsey report COVID-19 and US higher education enrollment published in May 2020 found that 86% of college presidents put fall or summer enrollment numbers at the top of their most pressing issues in the face of COVID-19. At the same time, online learning providers were reporting a tenfold increase in sign-ups and associated revenues. And Holon IQ reported in June 2020 that massive online open courses had increased their reach by two and a half times. Put another way, MOOCs were up 300 million monthly visits globally as isolated learners sought solutions to their skills needs amid a rapidly evolving work landscape. To try and make sense of all of this, I spoke to the CEO of Class Central, Darul Shah. Class Central tracks online courses. Here we are chatting earlier this year in June with lots of head scratching around who these online learners were and whether they would impact the traditional university offering and uptake. A lot of these courses will be taught online. So, you know, MOOCs presumably are a much cheaper alternative to sort of going direct to universities. And so I thought, who better to talk to than you about this? So I just wondered what you're seeing. And um... yeah, so this is so what happened was uh, on March 15th. uh, This was when uh, US and probably rest of the world also started going into lockdown. And that's when we saw a sudden interest in uh, Class Central. So we saw traffic go up drastically. And within like 15 days, we had like 5 million users. Wow. And um, if you compare, February was just half a million. So we just within 15 days, we almost got a year's worth of traffic. Yeah, I think people just found themselves with more time. Suddenly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they were at home and they were looking for these opportunities to learn. I, I wondered if you have spoken to any of the kind of online learning providers about if they're seeing possible what would have been students for universities saying actually you know I'm just going to do this course online for a year and see where I am next year are you sort of seeing that type of traffic with the actual MOOC providers that you're talking to as well honestly it's hard to tell from our perspective we just don't know that yet Mm -hmm. and even when initially like even when universities started going online uh, MOOCs were really not the part part of the equation at all. So we uh, we didn't see any change in traffic, uh, and I was observing like the providers itself through some other sites where which sort of estimate traffic. So it was not part of the conversation. But as soon as part quarantine started, mm-hmm. so I think even previously it was the case that though MOOCs were like thinking about like traditional college student, but it turned out to be it's just adult learners. Mm-hmm. We're looking for professional learning, and I'm not sure if that's changed yet. If I'm not sure if college students are like, or currently people are considering MOOCs as an alternative or a short-term alternative to uh, a traditional education. So, whilst online learning has boomed, largely this seems to have been both professional and lifelong learners with extra time on their hands during lockdown. Fast forward to more recent times and I asked both Santiago and Gaz about the impact of COVID on their specific student numbers and the usually so well-oiled student admissions and assessment processes. Um, I think the highest 
really think on my mind at the moment is the roller coaster that students have been through uh, in this year and the state of mind they're going to be in when they join us. Of course, some of them would had huge disruption to their studies through strike actions, industrial actions before COVID. Then in the last term, the COVID, you know, I, I would consider it you know, a global disaster, really. Mm. It really impacted on young people's lives in many ways. You know, having to go back and live with your with your parents and be in lockdown and, and not enjoy your final term of the year. But then also for A-level students having disruption to their um, A-levels, not knowing how their results are going to be worked out. And then, of course, we've all witnessed what's happened in the last few days since the A-level results have come out and the roller coaster that they've been on now. So mm. turmoil, I would say, uh, for people, uh, for young people coming to us in September, whether they are returning students, second and third years or first year students. And um, I have no idea what the numbers are going to be. You know, we, we read today you know, on the news that the number of controls have been lifted on mm. many subjects. Uh, universities have to offer students their firm choice uh, university. Uh, I think there will be, there will inevitably be some deferrals to next year just because of capacity issues. Uh, I mean, I think this is a really interesting point. I mean, I was just having this conversation over lunch that, you know, it seems a matter of weeks ago, everyone was sort of speculating about, you know, whether students would turn up and, you know, whether universities would be left with gaping holes in their student numbers. And then uh, sort of with the debacle around um, exam uh, assessment and the A-level places, um, now the conversation has almost flipped 180 degrees to, you know, are there enough places? And so that's quite an interesting switch without much discussion in between, it felt like. Absolutely. Uh, it really is. Uh, it has been a roller coaster of a few days. Uh, it could be the, the, you know, a bumpy year for recruitment on many fronts. Um, but then the, the thing that people like me have to be mindful of is what experience the students are getting, you know, to maintain the level of support that a lot of students who have already had quite a tough year will need when they join us uh, is going to be a real challenge. Uh, we've already, we, before the lockdown, we've already seen a, a rise, which is very much documented in, in the press and elsewhere around the rise in well-being and mental health issues for students. Mm-hmm. And this year, I, I suspect, will be uh, even more acute. Um, so you're, you're absolutely right. We, we, we really don't know yet what, what the numbers are, are going to look like, uh, but it does look like there's going to be a lot more students at university. I mean, it is, um, of course, that's an established trend. So at times of recession uh, and mm-hmm. actually at times of great boom, uh, young people do decide to invest in their education. Um, there isn't much opportunity to travel next year. Uh, the job market is struggling significantly. So university is a very good option for young people. And... In terms of sort of the, you know, the new term, um, are you using any digital technologies to help with sort of track and trace or contact tracing with either staff or students? Yeah. So we, um, we have, for some of our facilities, we're required through the government uh, guidance to uh, have the capacity to uh, track people around our buildings and to trace uh, people. So we're at the moment investigating um, potential apps to do that and actually we're looking at third-party providers and we've narrowed down the uh, other use of technology which is very important and has been throughout the lockdown is our 
online resources to support students who have stayed with us in the hall in the halls of residence uh, so we have provided a whole range of support um, uh, you know um, mechanisms whether it's through social uh, virtual social events uh, reporting illness being able to request a face-to-face -face call with a warden or with an advisor or uh, actually falling ill and requiring your meals to be delivered mm. to your room or being contacted for us to contact parents. So our online resources have been um, significantly improved for, for lockdown. The other area uh, of technology that we were able to turn around very quickly is online assessments for our worldwide programs. We used to rely on teaching centers in 190, uh, in 190 countries. And we managed to undertake you know, 100,000 online assessments um, proctored. Um, and we believe that that is, must be the largest number that was carried out in the UK. And that was, um, there were, of course, there will be lessons learned. It was the first time we've done it, but it, on the whole, it ran really successfully and students were able to sit their exams all around the world. And we were able to uh, provide the, you know, the proctoring for, for this service, which is, uh, uh, which is very good. That's really fascinating. And um, I just wondered if, uh, you know, as part of any of this, which is a great experiment for all of us, whether you'd be keeping any of these um, developments that, you know, has, have been a response to COVID. So, for example, you know, you, you mentioned the teaching uh, or assessment centres, but, but, but now, you know, would you consider keeping that online assessment or, or keeping both perhaps? 100%. We uh, undertook a survey of the students who took the online assessments um, and we have the first set of results. We were looking at them last week. Uh, the students found it a very helpful way to sit their exams. They found the experience supportive. They didn't think that the fact that their online exams were uh, that their exams were online would impact on employers' view mm. of their degree. They didn't think that it'll affect the uh, you know the value of their degree or their employment options or anything like that. I think the world has has made the step change. You know, all the things that we've been talking about for the last probably 20 years, you know, we need to invest in online teaching. We need to enable students to study wherever they are. We need to enable students to sit examinations wherever they are. You know, it has been in the ether for quite a long time, but people have clung on to quite traditional mm -hmm. structures, mm -hmm. academic structures and academic quality reasons for not progressing these things we have had to find solutions and we did find solutions and we've implemented new ways and I can't see us going back to the old way now. I, I don't think students would let us actually. I think students um, who have experienced those technologies will want them to continue. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, the universities managed to find an assessment solution. And I, I do kind of wonder, slight aside to this podcast episode, but with, with the exams crisis, you know, it does make you wonder why that wasn't possible in terms of assessment for, you know, other stages of learning. But um, anyway. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I guess we had a tiny little bit more time than, than mm. the government would have done. I guess the exams would have happened a little bit earlier. But certainly the learning is, is transferable um, and should be adopted more widely and when you think of students who struggle to access higher education which is a you know it I mean access and inclusivity is within the DNA of the University of London so enabling all those who want to access higher education across the world to be able to 
to do so and to access really quality degrees and get quality uh, qualifications is something that is at the heart of our um, strategy and at the heart of our being. Um, then this move to uh, online teaching, online assessment will enable so many more people to access higher education in the best way uh, that, that suits them. So I think it's great um, for higher education and great globally. Well, that's a very interesting question because uh, we were thinking that uh, given, you know, the, uh, the problems for international mobility, and we have been particularly active here, we actually led um, a manifesto uh, in, in defense of international mobility for students that was actually signed by leading universities, including Harvard, Yale, uh, and, uh, and others. No? So um, what we have done is actually tracked on an individual case, student by student, what, what is their status, and try to help them uh, reach uh, Madrid so we were actually thinking about even, you know, uh, renting um, private jets in order to gather participants from um, a particular region or a particular country in order to guarantee that they could uh, come mm. to Madrid. But as I said, you know, since we offer hybrid uh, formats, they can begin their program uh, and then come whenever is more convenient for them or whenever, you know, mobility becomes uh, easier. But um, actually the uh, composition of the class has not changed you know, dramatically. What we notice is that there are more difficulties for coming into Europe from some latitudes, particularly Latin America and Africa. And that's why we are taking special measures in order to bring uh, those students uh, into uh, Madrid, uh, into our campus. But basically, this year, as regards uh, degree programs, we have experienced uh, actually an increase in demand. Mm. And, uh, and actually, the composition of the class has uh, been, you know, as diverse as in previous cohorts. So we are really happy because this shows that uh, the pools uh, of, um, you know, degree programs, undergraduate programs, is actually very steady that young students want to have an international experience. They really value uh, moving across the world and uh, they are true uh, international citizens who enjoy engaging with people from different cultures. And what we discovered, of course, when uh, the pandemic started months ago is that we should run most of our admissions process or all uh, the different stages of admissions on an online format or virtual format. And this is what we did. We actually passed all the different uh, uh, stages, uh, interviews, tests, and all that stuff uh, into a, an online format, which has helped, of course, a lot uh, developing uh, the different processes. We have also been in, in very close contact with all candidates in terms of providing them updated information on the state of pandemics, uh, Mm. in Madrid and in Spain and elsewhere in Europe. Also, we have assisted them in terms of uh, uh, looking, you know, for places, for uh, residences, for dorms. Uh, of course, in terms of uh, guaranteeing that they um, have uh, all the necessary, you know, conditions to enjoy a safe and uh, a healthy environment. 
we have also anticipated some of uh, the requirements for uh, attending on a hybrid format. So we have uh, made them more become more familiar with our uh, platforms, educational p- platforms, which includes, for example, the Wow Room, which is a, a platform that we created that includes a very interactive uh, um, platform in, in terms of the different apps that both professors and participants can use. So we have been in very close contact with all the candidates over the past months, guaranteeing that uh, they were confident uh, on uh, the circumstances that they will find uh, here in Madrid and responding to every uh, single question, not just with them, but also, of course, with their parents who are also a very important stakeholder of our university as regards uh, uh, undergraduate programs. So um, I guess this has helped, you know, a lot. And given that we have a a reputation in high-quality online forms of education, um, this has resulted, I I suppose, in in attracting an increasing number of, of candidates. In fact, what we have noticed is an increase in the number of both applicants as well as students in our Global Online MBA, which is ranked uh, number one by publications like uh, the Financial Times or uh, The Economist. And uh, we expected, you know, this to happen, but we weren't sure given the uncertainty and the volatility in markets. And and this has happened. So we are happy that, uh, you know, the the market actually recognizes the merits of, of, of this program. So the appetite for university appears undiminished by what has happened this year. Indeed, in the UK, a record 40.5% of all 18-year-olds applied to go to university this year, with numbers rising significantly during lockdown. Not only that, but of 137 universities here in the UK, 89 out of 92 of those which were applied to a university's UK survey announced that they would provide some in-person teaching this term. That has strong implications for what the campus looks like and how it can prepare. Both IE University and the University of London have international students, an online and mature campus offer, and strong links to industry. Here they talk about developing their campus to meet current and long-term needs with increasing hybrid and blended approaches. Um... And I mean, we talked a little bit about your passion earlier around, you know, buildings, property and, and the estate. Um, so I've got here, you know, Senate House at the University of London has one of the most famous libraries in the world. And then you've also got Student Central, uh, what used to be the University of London Union and all the amazing social sides of being a student in London. Um, so just wondered if you could share with us a little bit how the University of London is working to sort of translate all of these physical experiences into an equivalent but alternate experience during 2020. Yeah, so we put our um, estate to, um, you know, to hard work actually. Our estate needs to earn its keep because of its listed nature um, and, they, and the costs that go along looking after such fantastic assets. I see myself as a very lucky custodian of this estate for the time that I'm uh, looking after it. Um, so quite a lot of our estate is uh, is used by member institutions for teaching, by uh, by our own uh, research institutes through the 
School of Advanced Study um, and also to other academic uh, endeavors. We also, uh, of course, host many conferences and events uh, and filming. You would have seen us on uh, on numerous films. Actually, on Instagram, we're running UOL at the movies. Um, mm-hmm. So if anybody follows the University of London uh, on Instagram, you'll be able to see all the movies that have been shot in Senate House. Um, the, the, the future issue that we are uh, working on at the moment is how we combine digital experience with our physical assets uh, to provide a, a really modern, interactive and responsive learning and teaching environment and event actually environment to all of our key stakeholders. Um, so we're making quite a lot of investment in the digital infrastructure of, of the uh, of the buildings uh, in terms of you know presentation capability, uh, conferencing capability, teaching capability etc. Uh, we've also, um, I don't know whether you've ever visited John in the office when when he was at the University of London we have all of the professional services in the lower ground floor which primarily was your storage was um, made into very modern activity-based working hot hot desking space Um, and that's just to support a very modern way of working so for example when we went into lockdown all of the professional services at the University of London were able to start working from home almost immediately there was no issue everybody had their equipment everybody had already been trained and our policies had been changed and updates to enable everybody to work in the most appropriate location to what they're doing. So that was a very easy uh, transfer uh, for us. Not the same, of course, for academic colleagues who have uh, you know, research uh, that they need to undertake or they have offices where they meet students and have face-to-face teaching and that took a little bit longer. So the estate is a great asset, but it, it just needs continuous modernization. Because we, of course, um, um, champion and have invested in in blended programs Mm. over the past 20 years. But we very much emphasize on the face-to-face in presence part, which is essential as part of the equation. So we we, we don't uh, run purely online uh, programs at present, although, of course, the pandemic has forced us, uh, particularly over the past uh, months, to run most of our classes on an online or virtual methodology. But anyway, uh, in fact, I mean, we have already opened our campuses uh, here in Spain. We have two wonderful campuses, as you were mentioning, one in Madrid, in downtown Madrid. So uh, students are actually able to enjoy all the wonders of the city. But uh, also we have a campus in Segovia, which is just uh, 45 minutes from Madrid, in a monastery of the 15th century. So it's a magnificent uh, environment in order to reflect and uh, enjoy uh, both uh, the academic experience as well as interacting with your peer students and, of course, enjoying this uh, very historical, very well-preserved city. So what we have done is is actually introducing the strictest uh, sanitary protocols uh, here. Over summer, we were working on transforming all the facilities in order to provide the distance uh, measures which are required by the government. And this, of course, means that the classes uh, will not be composed of more than uh, 25, 30 students uh, in order to guarantee enough space among them. We have also changed uh, the way people enter and exit the campus and the directions 
across the different corridors. We have introduced all sorts of um, health and uh, sanitary instruments on campus. And most importantly, what uh, we are actually providing all of our students and staff and faculty and visitors on campus is uh, tests, uh, medical tests, when they arrive. And uh, for our students, what we require is that they fill in an app every night before they access campus on the following day. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, real-time information about the medical status of all the people uh, that visit our campus, which is probably the best possible guarantee that you can implement in order to provide the safest uh, campus uh, to the people who, who enjoy it. Of course, nothing guarantees that uh, you know the virus may enter in some way at some stage or someone you know may be contagiated. Or So what we have also implemented is a number of protocols in case this happens. And uh, we will separate uh, uh, the people who um, are infected, the class, uh, the section, whatever, and apply the, the most, uh, the strictest, actually, measures in order to guarantee that people don't get actually contagiated. But uh, apart from this, uh, I guess it's a question of personal responsibility. What we are emphasizing very much is that uh, our students and, uh, of course, the faculty and staff should uh, take care of themselves and be aware of um, what are the norms and the principles that they may implement in order mm -hmm. to avoid, you know, uh, putting the others at risk. So everything is actually prepared to receive the students on campus. We have already begun with uh, the years, the courses that started uh, in previous years. And uh, we plan to open uh, the first, uh, this next uh, year class uh, on Monday, next week. And uh, what we hope is that uh, we can actually run most of the activities uh, in presence, face-to-face. But of course, we are prepared and everything is in, 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 in time and place in order to jump into hybrid formats mm -hmm. in case this is required. In fact, what we know, because we have tracked uh, the students and uh, not just, you know, the, 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 the new students, but also those uh, belonging to previous cohorts, in order to see whether they have any problems, difficulties to get their uh, visas or to access uh, uh, Madrid or international mobility issues, all that sorts of things, which are actually probably the major problem. And uh, we have tracked all of them, and we provide those who cannot attend face-to-face -face in present uh, classes a hybrid format. So they can actually attend uh, from home or from their uh, home countries uh, in case you know they cannot attend for whatever reason or in case they cannot uh, come to Madrid. So we're actually running this hybrid format that provides the, the, the most uh, ample uh, flexibility at the most uh, convenience of, of, of participants and students. Bringing students back on campus comes with its own challenges. In episode 198 of the EdTech podcast, our guest from the University of Lincoln told us that the first week of university in the UK is the largest movement of the population outside of a religious festival. During a pandemic, this comes with added complexity for obvious reasons. Indeed, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, or SAGE, has said that significant outbreaks of COVID-19 linked to universities are highly likely. 
So, in order to best track and maintain the health and well-being of staff and students, and maintain that crucial trust as a civic player in a physical environment, many universities are deploying technology in a new way. Hi Sophie, thanks very much for having me on the podcast. So as you said, my name is Geshrika Nisikara and I'm the Senior Director for Institution Success at Salesforce.org. I work on a global team that focuses on the unique needs of schools and universities related to learner success, areas like recruitment and admissions, advising, career development on one hand, our institution success on the other hand, areas like alumni engagement, the faculty and staff experience, unified marketing and communications, for example. So my day-to-day focuses on the latter bit. We're, we're recording this in August 2020, so COVID-19 is always going to be um, a factor of this discussion. And it's obviously had a huge impact on the higher education sector. Um, I wondered if you could share with us some of the conversations you're having with um, universities um, at this moment. And especially around sort of campus reopening and thinking about the new term that's coming up. Of course. Well, Sophie, as you know, we're still in the middle of this crisis. So the full extent of the impact is yet unknown. And, And this is really the precise challenge that we see every day as we talk to universities about making reopening possible. We've been working with universities in a few different ways, but the needs have been fairly consistent in terms of the questions that we hear being asked. How can we inspire confidence in our students, faculty, and staff? How can we contain disease spread if outbreaks occur? And finally, how do we provide unified communications in a rapidly changing environment? By way of example, Sophie, the University of Kentucky is an institution we've worked with. For those unfamiliar, it's a public research university here in the United States of around 20,000 undergraduate students. And they are using Salesforce to do wellness monitoring in addition to contact tracing for all of their students. They're also using one of our solutions, Marketing Cloud, to provide that unified communications around what they're calling a healthy behavior campaign. And, you know, Sophie, what I love about this story is that their AVP of marketing, Julie Bailog, said, we see this as an investment in the future long after COVID. This will allow us to provide holistic support to our wildcat community. That's their school um, motto. And so what we're seeing is beyond the crisis management part, you know, we're really humbled to be working with institutions around the world in a number of ways. I know uh, you are in the UK, and so just thinking about that region, we've had institutions like Duale Hochschule in Heilbronn, Germany, that's using our learning platform, My Trailhead, and a collaboration tool, Quip, to transition lectures to digital. The London School of Economics use Salesforce technology like Community Cloud to really enable professors to review student content in addition to using our service cloud to support faculty as they transition to digital. So as you can see, the conversations span everything from health and safety and wellness to nuts and bolts of transferring learning from uh, you know, non-digital to digital medium. Yeah, that's absolutely brilliant. I mean, there's so many uses and I've been privy to, um, you know, some of that context uh, at home and, you know, um, a bit of a shout out to those that work in that sector. (laughs) I know exactly how much work has gone on, you know, for weeks and weeks and weeks, just hours and hours of conference calls to get this stuff nailed. And um, 
you know, and it's it's constantly changing. So it takes a bit of resilience and uh, and energy needed. So um, yeah, it's worthy of um, a round of applause for that effort. You mentioned contact tracing. And so I just wondered, could you um, share a little bit more about how you're helping institutions to do that? What we're learning is contact tracing is just one facet of a much bigger plan and multifaceted plan around keeping students, faculty and staff healthy and safe. And as we know from what the science tells us, contact tracing is helpful to a, a certain limit of contagion. And once you get beyond that, the uh, return in terms of helpfulness is diminished. And mm-hmm. so uh, there's really sort of a time window in which contact tracing can be quite helpful. So we approach all of this, I think, with the degree of contextualization and understanding what can be helpful when. And there are many kinds of contact tracing out there. It's probably one of the buzziest buzz terms I've heard talking to our community. And everybody simultaneously wants to do it and is unsure about what it means sometimes. So just to be clear, there are typically two big categories of contact tracing out there. There is uh, what's called proximity tracing or automatic contact tracing that's relying on some automatic technology like Bluetooth or Wi-Fi pings. Uh, We do what's called manual contact tracing. So it's very much human-led and it's really more uh, closer to case management. So the idea is uh, the university perhaps distributes a survey out there or they make known a hotline that constituents can call if they're feeling unwell or if they're doing the surveys, they're on a fairly regular basis sending in how they're doing, how they're feeling. And if a constituent reports that they are feeling unwell, then this is where contact tracing can kick in and Mm -hmm. a human being who's performing the function of being a contact tracer would reach out and talk to you and, and screen you, run through a series of questions to really ascertain how you are feeling, whether you are symptomatic of COVID-19 or if there are other issues going on. And as part of that, they would ask whom you come in contact with and uh, use that to create a map, if you will, of other uh, potentially impacted individuals that were in the same physical space as the person who initially called in. And um, so it's very much, again, a technology that's supporting an existing strategy at the university. And, uh, you know, we see this playing an impact not just for COVID-19 and contact tracing, but as you heard from that University of Kentucky example, being sort of a a new infrastructure for just connecting with students on a regular basis about other wellness issues as well. Part of this is also thinking forward into the difficult jobs and entrepreneurial markets students will be entering. How can universities support work-based learning programmes and job-seeking students? and then I've got here that um, IE University is ranked as the best university in Spain um, in the Times Higher Education Global Employability Ranking for 2019. So I just wondered, whilst, whilst you're on the line, you know, why you thought that IE scored so highly? Right, yes, which is going to be, of course, a challenge. But I guess um, the employability of our graduates is a a consequence, first, of course, of their profile and their preparation, because we train them to become very much hands-on entrepreneurial professionals, well-equipped in terms of their knowledge and skills. 
But, uh, but of course, there's many other factors that uh, make uh, our uh, programs become, you know, so practice-oriented, which, for example, includes having uh, clinical professors, people who come from practice mm. and teach uh, students, you know, from their own experience firsthand what they are going to encounter when they graduate. We also fill our programs with lots of uh, practical work, internships, consultancy projects and assignments. And uh, of course, this is applicable not just uh, to business, but also to, for example, global and public affairs, where students uh, attend different visits, either on site or in this case, you know, virtually to institutions like uh, United Nations or the European Union or in architecture, where, um, I mean, something that uh, normally didn't happen before is... Uh, students actually interact also virtually or online with uh, different uh, renowned architects mm. from uh, different cities and they actually learn you know how to design buildings how to des design spaces which is something that in architecture was not uh, that usual before no? but but anyway of course what what we aim is at uh, preparing graduates who are not just uh, the best possible professionals, very well prepared to jump into the uh, professional world as soon as they graduate, but also global citizens who feel a commitment to transform the world, who feel uh, the need of uh, creating the circumstances to provide more inclusion and respect for diversity, or uh, to um, build up companies and organizations that uh, provide a sustainable activity. And this is, I guess, something that uh, companies and organizations value increasingly. People with an ethical, uh, ethical, you know, commitment, people who have a sense of purpose, but people at the same time who are very well equipped and prepared uh, as, as professionals. Um, you know, we did an episode of the podcast previously, which was about um, making the university walls more porous to bring sort of local citizens and yeah. businesses in and, and perhaps people that wouldn't traditionally have gone to university or, or you know, previous members of their family hadn't. Um, so I just wondered how the University of London was keeping that community link and inviting people into the university during these times. And, you know, now we're not in, in a lockdown situation, but obviously it's a a dynamic situation so how you're uh, sort of approaching that side of the university so a, a number of ways um i'll start sort of in the furthest point and then come closer mm -hmm. to home um we have kept very closely uh, in touch with our global student community and we do that through a variety of social media platforms we also have a really fantastic student portal where they can access a whole range of resources to keep in touch with the university we also keep in touch with our alumni community which are um you know on the whole leaders across the world in in their field and through championing higher education and the different that it made to their lives um, you know we we work with them very closely to promote the value of a university degree value of University of London degree uh, as well uh, globally um, we have kept our library open for students and researchers who need to access our special collections in particular. So we have a, a click and collect service for library users and we're uh, opening the uh, library on the 
um, you know, on, on, on the 14th of, uh, of September uh, fully to students. And then we, of course, kept in touch with our member institutions um, and, uh, and the use of, of our buildings. Um, we've got social distancing just like everybody else. We've got one-way systems we've got the uh, you know the the signage um and all of that um but the, at the at the heart of everything in terms of enabling access to a university degree is the fact that our degrees are flexible they're mm -hmm. affordable so we don't charge the nine and a half nine thousand two hundred that everybody else does you can start your degree whenever you want you can finish it whenever you want you can have a break in the middle um it's you you uh, you know it's uh, your modules are credit bearing so you build your credit as suits your life uh we also have teaching centers in across the world so you if you don't just want to do online um learning you can get face-to-face -face teaching through accredited teaching centers across the world um and we go out there you know the university of london uh colleagues um in worldwide and in the development office go out and see students face to face and hear what they need and, and and provide the support that is requested. As we know, university is not just about studying and not just about jobs. It's also the sense of belonging and student life. It's about redesigning virtual student experiences and offers based on new needs. And the good news is there are some truly imaginative approaches being developed. How are university sort of caught my eye and um, I uh, engaged with the university about this interview was the amazing work that was being done around technology to actually keep student life going, probably more so in the middle of the you know pandemic at its peak for 2020 anyhow. Um, and I just wondered if you could share with our listeners some of what IE University has been up to with regards to student experience. So you know, the, the graduation ceremony that you've been holding and social events um, and other ways to, you know, maintain that um, sense of student belonging. Sure. And uh, as, as you say, extracurricular life is a very important part of the experience. I mean, not just uh, attending classes, either in presence or uh, on via, via uh, Zoom or via Wowroom or any other online platform, but also whatever happens outside the class, the way you interact with your uh, fellow students, who in our case belong to many different cultures, so it's part of the learning process, what you learn from different ways of thinking, different uh, visions of the world or of the good life. So what uh, we have uh, promoted over the past uh, months is that most of those uh, extracurricular activities, the initiatives that are run, for example, by the more than 60 different clubs existing on campus is that uh, they uh, are also they were also run online or in the most possible interactive way so given that uh, meetings of more than 10 or 20 people were not allowed what we did was actually passing many of those meetings to interactive formats and this goes you know from wine tasting sessions to discussing about uh, um, music to attending of course um, online concerts to uh, engaging in discussions about politics or about uh, literature or about fashion or about uh, the different uh, regions and countries that are represented on campus 
So on average, this means that every week there were more than 10 different events that were extracurricular that reflected, you know, that uh, diversity and richness of our university and were attended by lots of students who really appreciated, you know, interacting uh, socially on those platforms. In addition, of course, we have followed closely where our students were, whether they uh, returned to their home countries and continued attending their uh, programs from there. And we were calling them or contacting them, you know, from time to time to check whether everything was fine, was all right. We also provide, you know, uh, services in terms of well-being and in terms of, uh, you know, being, um, being properly, you know, uh, focused on, on your programs and on your duties. So I guess in these circumstances, when, when people, you know, are under a lockdown, and may feel, you know, more alone or more detached. What is particularly important is actually provide this uh, personal touch that uh, can take many, many, many different forms. But you were mentioning graduation, and of course we uh, organized a graduation which was very special, not just uh, conveying or uh, running the typical commencement ceremony online, but actually uh, arranging a sort of activities around this uh, commencement ceremony, which included, for example, this uh, session with uh, world uh, star uh, Steve Aoki, you know, the disc uh, jockey uh, who's uh, actually, I mean, he, he did an excellent job, and, and I guess that many students enjoyed that, and they met uh, uh, at different uh, places in groups of less than 10 participants in order to enjoy together, you know, the session. Or we also had a, a gastronomical feast with um, Dani Garcia, who is, a, who is a renowned chef here in Spain, three Michelin star, uh, who cooked, uh, you know, a sea bass um, in his own way with uh, all the participants. Of course, uh, participants were given all the necessary ingredients beforehand. Or uh, the participants were also able to attend, you know, a well-being session. So I guess that uh, all the graduates enjoyed this very much. And I guess that they, they, their parents also did. Because, um, I mean, what makes um, a university offer attractive is not just their programs, the classes, what uh, students learn uh, in class from their professors and from their fellow students, but also what happens outside the class. Uh, w which actually provides and, and, and rounds up, you know, the total experience lived at, at the university. This episode has charted some of the changes around campus reopening in 2020 and beyond. It's been a challenging year, but a year which has set the higher education sector on a different trajectory. There have been new ways of thinking or an acceptance that things will have to be done differently. I asked our guests what changes they would like to stick around. Many of the things that we have implemented over the past uh, months are here to stay. I mean, this uh, pandemic has um, affected the educational sector, universities, and but also, you know, K-12 and, and particularly executive education, which used to be very traditional, lifelong learning. So all the different segments of education will be affected in some way. I guess that uh, the major result will be um, flexibility and personalization. 
that uh, this will provide lots of opportunities for undergraduate students, for example, to combine their internships abroad and at the same time attending classes in rich, um, sophisticated online interactive formats. But uh, it will also, you know, provide uh, new ways of enriching and enhancing the learning experience using, for example, artificial intelligence or the Internet of Things. On the other hand, as I was mentioning before, learning analytics, uh, as, as, as it evolves, will provide us with uh, much more complete information on, on each of the candidates, on the way they learn, on what they uh, value most, on what are their particular features. Uh, so all these uh, transformations will make uh, the whole learning experience much more flexible, personalized, and effective, which is probably uh, the major consequence of uh, everything that has happened. What we have discovered, I guess, uh, during the pandemic is that technology, far from being an enemy of uh, civilization, as uh, some predicted, no? mm -hmm. people who were scared about the impact of robots uh, across different segment sectors, the fact is that technology has provided us with much better means of communicating with others. Over the, the, the past months, I guess, over the confinement, many of us have talked more with uh, former friends Yeah. with, uh, with uh, members of our relatives, members of our families. No? Uh, we probably interacted even more intensely with our own colleagues uh, at our places, uh, at our workplaces. And uh, so think about combining the best of face-to-face, uh, -face, in-presence forms of uh, um, socialization and, and interaction with these very rich forms of online and virtual and uh, uh, technology-assisted ways of learning. I mean, we can actually make uh, uh, the whole educational experience much more richer. And this affects, of course, all segments of education, as I was saying, from primary and secondary, even from kindergarten, I would say, up to lifelong education, which is very much in need also of transformations in this respect. You know, I know it's a cliche, but in terms of what we are anticipating, it seems the only constant is change. And when we think about the rest of the university academic year and what is to come, we know that universities will absolutely have to do multiple scenario planning as they start to build out for the next normal. On the positive side, Sophie, I think we are entering a new era of engagement for employees, by institutions, better communications all around, and really an urgency around ensuring the wellness of our students. With that in mind, we are working on going deeper into our solution set, in addition to solving some of these challenges for a broader segment of the education space. By that I mean, we recently launched a set of solutions called Work.com for Schools, this was just last week, which is comprised of the solutions I mentioned earlier, uh, but really meant for primary and secondary schools. And this was launched last week. It includes communication and family engagement tools, for example, as well as, student, as, as well as a student success hub. 
In terms of going deeper, it's been exciting to see certain key strategic partnerships come to fruition to really round out what we offer as, uh, for example, our announcement with CVS Health, which is a retail pharmacy here in the United States, which conducts COVID-19 testing. So you can imagine how that would plug in uh, where individuals can have their testing done at this retail pharmacy and link up that result with some of the contact tracing and the case management that's happening in other venues. So, you know, this is tough for everyone, but on a professional and a personal front, I've seen many sources of inspiration. And I think this has definitely shaped our mission to be there in lockstep with our schools and universities, supporting them at whatever stage of reopening they are at. So um, the surprisingly positive, I think, is the is higher education just change, changing the way it looks at some of its traditional structures. I think for me, that has been really fantastic to be able to break down those barriers that the only quality degree is one where you sit in front of an eminent professor and you're receiving that lecture face to face. It's just great that we've been able to find an alternative way of providing the same quality experience for students in a different way. And that has enabled them to, to get the, the learning and then uh, sit their exam and get a qualification. I think that's really great. Because that has hindered a lot of modernization of universities for many years, in, in my view. The other surprisingly uh, positive uh, thing that has happened is the ability of multidisciplinary teams to really work together effectively. So we together we have been coming together, coming together as academics, professional services, student support staff, uh, digital colleagues, um, you know, events and colleagues, communication colleagues, and work really effectively uh, through. Teams or Skype or Zoom or you know the various platforms, uh, and we've all our uh, digital competence has has come up in leaps and bounds. I think over the last few months. Um, for me, the um, the moments that I would take with me. Um, Actually, they they there have been some low moments and there have been some high some high moments. I really, when I left the office in whatever the date was, twenty third of March, where we were all asked to go into lockdown, I didn't bring with me all of my what's called the beverage bundle, which is the you know surface headphones, keyboard, mouse, you know my kit uh, for activity based working because I just didn't think I'm going to be away for that long. And usually, I just carry my surface around with me and I just work on it. So I've had to order all of these things uh, uh, of Amazon and, and uh, get those delivered. Um, so uh, so the, the low is actually how long it has lasted. I'm, I'm very much a people person and I miss my team. I miss the personal interactions. Um, so the, the early days for me were really quite difficult. Um, I haven't been able to clear the cellar or paint the house or mm-hmm. take up gardening or yoga or learn Spanish or any of those things because another sort of challenge has been you know the 12 hour days looking at the screen mm-hmm. um, and I'm really hoping that maybe I will find a, a better balance. Um, the the good things like I said before is just the ability of the teams to work together and keep things moving and keep things moving at an incredible pace really I think the pace of change that we've seen over the last six uh, the last how long has it been gosh it is nearly six months five months um, has just really been phenomenal and I 
take my hat, hat off uh, to all my colleagues who've worked so hard to transform what we do to the way it's being done now in such a short period of time. Lots of resilience by a lot of people. And when you think about sort of September and the date that the students, uh, you know, come into the universities, the University of London, how does that make you feel? Um, it makes me feel excited that we're going to have, you know, another academic year. There were some points where we were thinking, what on earth is going to happen next year? We really had no idea whether any students will come to any university, whether anybody would be able to travel. I will be um, excited to see whether any international students arrive. In that, of course, is the big unknown. Um, I'll be full of worry that there might be a lockdown in London just before the students move into their halls, because that will be really awful for everybody concerned. Because I think if we have a second outbreak, we would be able, now we've learned how to do it, students will stay in halls, we'll look after them, we'll make sure that they stay safe and well. Um, and they're their teaching is going to be, for the majority, uh, blended, the new the new 2020 word. Um, so it'll be a mixture of online and face-to-face -face anyway. So I think we would be able to continue to have an academic year. So I, my, my feelings are excitement, apprehension, uh, and I wish I had a, a really, really good crystal ball. <laughs> well, we believe, you know, having attended different uh, transformations, and uh, tsunamis uh, that have affected the world of education over the past uh, two decades. I mean, I can remember, you know, all the uh, e-learning phenomenon happening mm -hmm. at the end of uh, last century. And, and we actually jumped into that uh, opportunity and seized uh, that opportunity that was the beginning of our blended programs. But we have also attended, you know, the wave of uh, MOOCs, the Massive Online Open Courses, and many other uh, transformations. And what we have done every time is actually learn from those innovations and try to bring them into our programs and offerings. I guess we were very open, uh, very experimental. Uh, we are, I guess, uh, very innovative. This is the way they are peers and uh, the accreditation body sees us. No? I, I still recall, you know, a re an accreditation report years ago which uh, stated, you know, that we were uh, an opportunistic university. And at first, you know, what I thought is that that was a, a sort of criticism. But frankly, I mean, thinking it twice, what I believe is that uh, it's good that we are opportunistic because whenever we see an opportunity to enhance and increase and, and improve the learning process, uh, we actually seize that opportunity. So we actually do what we teach our students. Eh? We teach our uh, business students to seize opportunities to become entrepreneurs. And we as educators also seize those opportunities. We are not, in that sense, you know, traditionally oriented. And I guess one of the advantages of being a very young, very disruptive, you know, university is that we experiment a lot. So over the years, I guess we have consolidated our blended methodology and uh, our, our online format. We launched uh, four years ago the, the WOW Room, which is a fantastic auditorium that uh, replicates in the best possible way a class with all the screens uh, of uh, participant students uh, and, and the professor using uh, very sophisticated apps, including face recognition, which allows... Uh, the teacher, you know, to, to, to assess whether participants are getting bored, you know, or 
whether they are attending uh, the class with, with attention, for example. No? So we very much care for all the contributions that technology brings into education, from learning analytics into uh, personalization and making uh, the whole learning process the best possible experience. And I guess this has been reflected, you know, in, in the rankings and uh, in the different uh, accreditation reports and in the opinion of all the stakeholders. And if you ask me actually what is the, the main advantage or competitive advantage behind all, all these uh, efforts and initiatives, what I guess is, is that we, we were able to develop a faculty who is very committed. Mm. Uh, in the end, you know, is not uh, the content, is not the platform, is actually the experience that provides you know the best possible, the best possible asset, and and that experience is actually provided by faculty, who are the orchestrators of the whole learning process. Faculty and professors who know how to manage the platforms, and who who know how to make uh, the whole experience the best possible case for each participant and student. That is our secret, I guess. Very quick final one-liner bonus question. So you mentioned in your writing that you looked at um, female philosophers and I wondered if, you know, when you think back to those female philosophers, if there are any that would help shine a light on um, our current circumstances and provide some uh, useful reading or thinking um, for anyone listening in. Absolutely. And uh, let me just mention maybe two. One is uh, Martha Nussbaum. She's an American philosopher who is known for her defense of humanities in the curriculum. So Martha Nussbaum, um, is, is, she's actually, you know, a, a leading philosopher. Mm -hmm. I would refer to maybe a Spanish philosopher, Adela Cortina, whose uh, last book was actually about uh, what she calls uh, aporophobia, which is hating of the poor. What she explains is that uh, our aversion to uh, migrants, you know, to people who come from Africa, or in the case of the Americas, people who come from the South, is not related to uh, necessarily different uh, race, but their uh, status as poor people, as, as needy people. No? And this is, of course, based on biological uh, traits, the way our brain, you know, is configured. And what she explains is that the way to overcome, you know, this resistance, which is a bad thing, is through education. I mean, becoming more uh, knowledgeable, for example, about African culture. Africa, for example, is a, um, a continent, is a mystery for, for many people. Uh, people consider Africa as a single continent, a single country, a single market. And it's probably the, the most diverse continent uh, in, in the world. And it's called to become, you know, the, uh, probably the most, uh, the, the core and the center of gravity in this century. So we need to learn more about those cultures that uh, we, we are in, ignorant about. Mm. The good thing is that uh, knowledge makes us become more human and better people. And uh, if we actually, you know, adapt uh, the educational world and uh, the methodologies and the platforms to a much better and more flexible and personalized uh, way of learning, I guess we, we will get, you know, much better results in, in, in terms of producing 
better people, better citizens, and uh, much better professionals. Absolutely brilliant. I love that. His to uh, his to knowledge, making us better people. And um, Santiago, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much. It has been a real pleasure. And <laughs> congratulations again. Thank you very much. That's the end of this first episode in our new season. Come back next time for a fresh look at student experience with more great examples. Thanks so much for listening in and huge thank you to all of my guests and salesforce.org for supporting. And don't forget the salesforce.org guide for universities on reopening your campus safely, which I've had a peek at and has some really good and simple suggestions on everything from economic recovery scenario planning to moving through phases of stabilisation, reopening and long-term digital transformation. For all other show notes, including resource and reading recommendations from our guests, go to the edtechpodcast.com and you can continue the conversation online at Podcast EdTech and Salesforce Org. Stay safe, stay smiling if you can. Sounds good. Take care of yourself, Goody. Take care. Have a good evening. And again, thanks for listening. <laughs> I wish I could deliver that crystal ball to you. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. And, and I wish you all the best uh, in, in your podcast and other activities. Bye-bye.